During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. This is God's word. If you've been been with us uh, over the last couple months, we've been looking at the story of David, the life of David. He's the longest narrative history of a single human life in ancient literature, in all of ancient literature. And uh, whenever you read something uh, that extensive about one person, it's going to tell you ultimately what makes a life, what breaks a life, what renews life. And this is a a very moving text, um, and we're going to go right into it. Um, We're going to see what the text teaches, and uh, we're going to go through the text, understand the text a little bit, and then we're going to see a few lessons on what this text teaches. Very simple, right? So we're going to go through the text, and then we're going to see what the text teaches, Um, just a few things that it teaches us. As we've seen in previous weeks, King Saul, when he became aware that David would be crowned as king, that he, would be, he was anointed to be the next king. Rage and jealousy corroded him. And after a while, it started out covertly, but then he openly began to try to kill David. And as a result, David had to flee into the wilderness. And while he was out there, about 400 men at one point, 400 men had gathered around him, and they became very close. They were fighting together. And uh, in the civil war that they were involved in, and they became very close. They became this band of soldiers. They were battle-tested and ready all the time. And if you know anything about the book of uh, the Samuels, Saul eventually dies during the civil war. And these men, these mighty men, became David's closest friends. They became his guardians. They became, uh, you know, they loved David. Uh, they saved David's life. They were his most loyal band of brothers. They were also incredibly skilled, the military elite in David's army, and so they became his palace leaders. And they, were, they, they knew each other very, very well. Um, they became like family. They were called as mighty men. And this incident, it didn't take place during the time of David running from Saul. It didn't take place then. It came, it really, this incident in particular, it takes place immediately after David becomes king. So he's this newly crowned king, and uh, the Philistines, they were the known arch rivals of the Israelites, of the nation of Israel. They decided at that point when David became king to invade Israel, to test his kingship, possibly to overthrow him because you figure it's a new king. There's a big transition. The civil war had just ended. If we attack now, they're weak. David, the king, is weak, possibly to weaken him even more. And so it was a really dark time. It was a very dark time in David's life, in his kingdom. And if you look at verses 13 to 14, it says this, The men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in a stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was in Bethlehem. Now, what's going on here? First, what we see 
is that the Philistines, they were encamped uh, in the valley of Rephaim, just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. They had taken over Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's hometown. And David, as a result, out of his hometown, he had to run away. And he set up his own headquarters where? In this cave, in this cave of Adullam. And that shows you how weak the state of this country was. Here's David. He's a king. But he's, once again, out in the wilderness. Once again, he's on the run. Once again, he's in caves. And on top of that, it says it was happening during the harvest time. And that is disastrous for a country, especially an agrarian society. Why? Because if the Philistines came and they destroyed the agriculture, or they plundered the agriculture, the country would have a shortage of food. There would be a famine. The country would fall into an economic depression during a time of war that would completely weaken, maybe devastate David and his kingdom. And so David, he's in his period of darkness. He's in the cave. And he's out in the wilderness, even though he's king. And the Philistines are in Israel. They're in Bethlehem with the economic future of the country at stake. And while in the cave, David, you see this in verse 15, David, he's longing for water, it says. He says, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, I want to show you here, David wasn't thirsty. That's not what he was saying. He's not saying, I'm thirsty. Because there's no way that in his headquarters, where all of his mighty men were, that there would be not a spring nearby. They wouldn't choose a place. These, this is the military elite and the general together. They're not going to choose their headquarters to be a place without water. They're, David wasn't thirsty. Why is he longing for water? He says, oh, he's longing for water, it says. Why is he want, longing for water? He's not just longing for water. He says, I want water from a well, from that well near their gate near my hometown. He's longing for home. He's homesick. He's longing for that place. He's longing for water from Bethlehem. He's longing not necessarily for physical water because Bethlehem, you know, every area's water tastes differently, right? Every city's water tastes different. Bethlehem's water was very sweet and it represented the favor of God. It represented the promise of God in David's hometown. So he's saying, gosh, I wish, where is the promise of God? I want that. I want that. I'm longing for that. Lots of promises. He's supposed to be a king but he's in darkness. He's in a cave. He's supposed to be home, but where is home? David doesn't have a home. He's displaced. Lots of promises from God. David was supposed to be the deliverer. He was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to be the ruler. He was supposed to be the, uh, the one who sits on the throne. God was supposed to be with him. He was anointed by God. And yet here's David. He's weak. He can't even get water from his own hometown. And what he's really asking here is, will I ever find my home? Beyond the suffering, what's going to happen to these promises that God had made? And he's sighing, this heavy, deep sigh. He's saying, oh, if I could just have a taste of that water from home. And incidentally, what happened? You know, here's David, he's praying for peace. He's sighing. He says, I just want rest. I'm so tired of running. I'm so tired of fighting. I'm so tired of just living like this. I'm so tired. This cave, this darkness, I wasn't meant for this. I just want to be home. And what happened? His men overheard. 
And of the 30 chief men in that army, three of them in particular, they were the mightiest. If you read earlier parts of chapter 23, they could, write, they could make a movie of every one of these verses. If you read the earlier parts of chapter 23, you see the exploits of the mighty men, how incredibly powerful these three were. But it's these three that overheard, and, and they hear their king's longing. They hear his sigh. They see his suffering, and they see our king, our leader, is so discouraged. He's so in doubt. And so what do they do? Verse 16, the three mighty men, they broke through the Philistine lines, and they drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. That's what they did. Now, there's a lot of detail. If you read that verse, there's a lot of detail that's lacking there. All you hear is that they overheard, they broke through the lines, they got the water, they came back. But a lot had to have happened in order for them to do that. A lot had to have been accomplished. There's a tremendous lack of detail. And that tells us something. In this age of media, in our age of media, multimedia, marketing, the focus on individual achievements. If you watch any sports channel and look at the highlights, the focus is always on individual achievements. It's actually a pet peeve of mine because I think it, it, it hinders creativity and it hinders uh, or inspiration for us to be able to do things. It hinders heroism. You don't see here the camera angles. You don't see here the high-definition exposure of what these men did. You don't see that focus on the home run or the touchdown or the dunk. You don't hear the crowd here. You don't see the battle itself. We love hyping achievement. In our world today, we love focusing on individuals and what they can and cannot do, whether it's in our church or whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our homes. The Bible doesn't do that. That's one of the first things we learn here. The Bible never does that. Never romanticizes human achievement. Never romanticizes war. Never romanticizes battles and blood. Ancient Greek myths, if you ever read the Odyssey, I had the pleasure and the privilege of being able to teach the Odyssey in college. And uh, one, one of the things that you see here, ancient Greek myths are tremendously graphic about human heroes and their achievements and their heroism. But you don't see that here. The Bible never does that. Why? Because it's not human art that we're reading here. This is news. This is news. This is history. This is from God. In verse 16, so what happens here? What happens in that one verse? The Philistine garrison, they're like a, the garrison was like an early warning system. Kind of like that. It's like an early warning system. And uh, there, were, there were a garrison of 20 people, uh, and they were camped out there. And these, the garrison was a, an alert system to go back to the headquarters in case somebody, uh, in case the enemy breaks through. So they're the first line of defense. And these three men, they cut their way through that garrison of 20 men. They get to Bethlehem. Now you know that the Philistines have been alerted. The nation has been alerted. They've broken into the headquarters because Bethlehem was the headquarters. And what that means is, you know, forget about waiting for uh, the Philistines to come, you know, uh, because you've broken through their lines. Now you're surrounded. And they do that to get water. They get the water. Then Bethlehem is, is, their gate is up a hill. So basically what these men had to do is after they broke through the garrison, they had to fight their way uphill into Bethlehem. And uh, they're at a disadvantage. You never do that. You're taught not to fight uphill. And then what they do is they broke through the lines. They get to the well. Now, think about this. There were only three men. One of the men has to actually get the water, 
right? So you can imagine there's two men who are fighting off the entire army, the Philistine army. One guy's getting, come on, come on, come on, getting the water into his, into his uh, bottles, water bottle, right? He gets the water bottle, they seal it up, right? Then the three men have to fight their way through that army, down the hill, through the garrison again, and back out and home. That's what they had to do. Three men. The Philistine camp is asking, there are only three men, there has to be more. Where is the rest of them? Why'd they come? How'd they get here? How'd they get through all this? Did they come for gold? Did they come for prisoners? Did they come for vengeance? No, they came for water. They came for water. Come on, there's plenty of water in the area. There were plenty of springs in the Bethlehem area. There were plenty of springs. There were plenty of other wells. Why did they choose that well? They brought it back to David. What happened? David, he's so moved that his men had done this incredible, performed this incredible act of heroism. David is so moved. He's so filled with joy. What does he do? He refuses to drink it. Now, you would think, uh, it, it almost seems insulting. He takes the water, and what does he do? He's so moved, he pours it out on the ground. These men who had fought, sacrificed at the risk of their lives, this band of brothers who came out for their leader, he pours the water out. And what he actually says is in verse 17, he says, Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives? And he did not drink it. Such were the exploits of the mighty men. The men stared death in the eye to bring back water to give it to their king. The king looks at it. He's so moved. He pours the water out onto the ground, this water that they almost died for. And you can imagine this puddle, and the puddle just basically evaporates. Were the men indignant? You would think, man, if I were me, I would be insulted. Is he insulting me? Is he rebuking me? The men would not have been indignant. Because what they saw was David. It says that he poured it out before the Lord. He was praying. He says, far be it from me, O Lord. He enters into prayer. He enters into worship. He pours it out. These men, they would have been honored because this drink offering to the king has become a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. It was an act of worship. These men would have bowed their heads. And what he's saying here is, I realize that because of the sacrifice of these men who came at the risk of their lives, now I know that God is with me. Now think about it. God is gracious, tremendously gracious to David. He knew that if the three men broke through the enemy lines, if these, think about these three men, if we could just break through these enemy lines and come back with the water, David, our king, would know that if three men can do it, David and his army can do it. And if David knew it, then the army would know it. And if the army knows it, then the nation would know. The nation would have strength. And think about this. If the Philistines know that it wasn't an army that came, but three men, and if three men can defeat them, as much as the Israelites could be moralized, they would become discouraged, demoralized. And so these three men, they were not trying to show how strong they were. The Bible does not ever do that. It doesn't show how strong they were, that they were not impulsive, that they weren't crazy, that this wasn't just a dare. They were calculated strategic leaders. This was the military elite in David's army. 
But what they knew was they knew their master was discouraged. They knew what their master was after. They knew what he was longing for. He needed assurance. And so they trusted. They knew. And so they wanted to show David what they knew. You know what faith is? Faith is living in line with what you know, that God was really with them. They bet their lives on God's promise. And what did they do? They showed complete devotion, total devotion to their king and to show them that victory comes through weakness. Victory comes through struggle and through suffering. Not despite your weakness, not despite your struggle, but in, the, in and through the weakness. And David realized then what they knew all along. And so he honored them, and they worshiped together. It's a great story. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean? I'm just, just going to share some quick things about what this means. First, every victory, every victory we experience is a gift. What was David doing when he was pouring the water out before the Lord? He's saying, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. In fact, you didn't earn this. Only by God's grace, the Lord did this. Three men breaking through an entire trained group of men, an army. He said, and he's, what he's saying is the Lord saw my weakness. The, you saw my weakness for that matter, and it shaped you, it moved you, it convicted you, and you knew, you acted on that. You knew what needed to be done. But don't just trust your strength. Don't just trust your skill. Don't ever say, when he was pouring out before the Lord, he's saying, don't ever say, we did it. You pour it out before the Lord as a gift. You know what's one way you can pour it out before the Lord as a gift? Do you know that today the rich, there's documented evidence, there's numbers everywhere, scholars try to explain it. The rich today only give away, the rich in our generation today give away a much smaller percentage of their wealth compared to the super rich years ago, a generation and a half ago, say. The rich today give a much smaller percent and it's because scholars, the way they try to explain it is it's because the rich years ago had a much greater sense of duty than the rich do today because the rich today feel entitled to their wealth. They get rich at a younger age, and they feel more entitled as if they had earned it. At a younger age, they've gotten wealthy, and they believe that they had done all the work more than any other time in our history, more than any other time in human history. We kill ourselves to get into the best high schools, to get into the best colleges, to get into the best sports programs, to have the best weddings, to have the best jobs, to rise up faster than others, to get the best promotions, to have the best careers, so that we can say at the end, this is the sum of my labor. I've earned it. David's men killed themselves virtually, used their gifts, used their strategy, their skills, their talents, their wits. But how much of that was really earned? Think about it. How much of your intelligence did you acquire? How much of your looks did you acquire? You were born with those things. That's a gift. You were born, most of your intelligence, people say most of it is born. You're born with that. Most of your natural human ability, you're born with. It was given to you as a gift. Listen, it doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter how much you've accomplished. If you get wealthy, you got to share it. Because if you don't, it shows you didn't believe you don't believe you didn't earn it. You believe you've earned it. That's t- every victory is a gift. Second, we have to obey the king. Very simple. We have to obey the king. These men, they were so devoted to their king. There was no difference between a command of the king and a sigh of the king. 
They knew their king. They knew their master. They read him so well. David's sigh, his wish, his longing was their command. You know what that means? There's no big difference. There's no difference. Um, well, I'm going to say it this way. There's a huge difference between religion and the gospel. Christians are called to respond to the Lord the way men, these men, responded to David, their king. A religious person does this. A, re- a religious person basically says, what does God require? I need to know what God wants. I need power. I need wisdom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on the rules. But you know how you can tell when someone is religious? They have these deep needs, very, very deep needs. And when they're asked to do something, when they're asked to give something apart from their needs, apart from what they really believe they need, you sense the frustration. They're silently frustrated because they're religious. They can't outwardly speak. In other words, um, they're only going to fulfill the law with joy when the law, when what is required, fits their needs. They're happy if their needs are met. They're angry if their needs are not met. A Christian is somebody, on the other hand, who searches God's heart. What does the Lord want? What is his sigh? What is his longing? What is his command? A religious person just looks at the command. Just looks at the command. Now what does he want? Now what, what, does, what is he asking of me? A Christian looks at the commands and sees God's longing, sees God's heart. A Christian says, I want to be moved by that. I want to take joy in that. What do you glory in? What do you take pleasure in? What do you take joy in? What is your heart's deepest longing, that thing that's going to refresh you and quench your thirst? It could be very, very noble. It doesn't have to be just selfish, right? A lot of times when we, th- when we hear a pastor or a preacher saying that you think, oh, he's talking about that selfish side of me. I'm actually talking about the noble side of you, your noble pursuits, the things that you're doing as a sacrifice. There's a longing there. And a lot of times what happens is when our agenda doesn't meet with the agenda that's presented in front of us, we get silently frustrated. The goal of the religious person is to do what God wants in order ultimately so that they would appease him and in many ways that they themselves would find satisfaction in that. Appeasing God, you're never going to live a big life that way. You're never going to live a full, rich life that way. You're always going to try to do the minimum that way. But a Christian does what God wants for the joy of God himself, for the pleasure of God himself. And so God's delight, satisfying the delight of God, that is never minimalistic. And that becomes the reward, knowing that you are satisfying and helping to fulfill God's longing. So that God ultimately is not a means to an end, but he's the end. David says, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So they went. That's an amazing thing that you hear. They, don't, they didn't get together and say, hey, let's have a meeting and discuss. Let's have a council and let's vote on whether or not how many of us should go and who should be apportioned to go. It's like they heard the sigh and they went. So they went. It was instant. There was no discussion. There was no meeting. There was no argument. It was almost on impulse. Their love for the king was so dynamic. How's your love for the king? Is it a calculated love? Do you have to bring out your life spreadsheet, calculate that out? Is it minimalistic? 
It's minimalistic in the sense that, you know, um, I can just give the leftover of what I have. If that's the extent of your love, that's not love. If you love your children, you would never want to love your children that way. That's love. Everybody here has a sense of what love is, sacrificial love. You would never want to love your children that way. You would never want to love your spouse that way, although we oftentimes do. But how do we love the Lord? your maker, the one whom we owe our lives. So here, uh, God, uh, David sighs, they went. Not so they could just get things from David. You know, think about it. David didn't have anything. He was living in a cave. They were sharing the cave with David. There was not much to gain. It was just out of love. They heard their king. They served their king. And so they went. The relationship between a Christian and God is so deeply, radically personal. The relationship between a religious person and God, it's so deeply mechanical. Think about your prayers. Is there an intimate connection or are they mechanical? Do they consist mainly of just wanting things, getting things? Or are you just trying to get over it, get it over with? When David saw the mighty men break through, then he had the assurance that God, through their sacrifice, God is with me. He got the assurance because they risked their lives. Now, if you read the Bible just to get answers, you know, just to learn what it means to live a moral life, it's never going to change your life. It's never going to move you. It's never going to shape you. It's never going to, you know, be like dynamite or a bomb implanted into your soul and explode you, right? Destroy you in that sense and and rebuild you. If anything, it's going to become oppressive, Sometimes it's going to be confusing, sometimes disagreeable, many times disagreeable. You need to understand that the text is about Christ. It's not about how to become mighty like these mighty men. It's about Christ. The Bible tells us what? That there's somebody who actually overheard your sigh, your longing. Everyone here has a deep longing. And we think, oh, if I could just have that. And somebody actually overheard your sigh, your longing for water, for a home, for rest, for peace. Just like David. David, he sighed for a home. And what he's saying is, I need peace. I need a a soul that is at rest. Somebody has overheard your heart, your longing. Your heart wants a home. You're not even sure what that means. What does it mean to have a home? You just know that you weren't built fully and totally for this. There has to be more. So there's a restlessness in our hearts. We're thirsting for more. And somebody actually said, so they got up and they went. And they went through and broke through the enemy lines for you. Jesus. Jesus Christ, he broke through the lines. Not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And uh, he, he really poured his life out as a drink offering for you. On the cross, blood poured out. And a spear struck him, and what came out was blood and water. His life was poured out. Water was pouring out. Sweat is pouring out. Tears are pouring out. Starting from Gethsemane, his tears and his, his life, he's saying, I, it said that sweat came down like drops of blood. What he's saying is, my life, blood is your life, right? My life is being poured out. That's what he's doing. Jesus made the sacrifice.
Jesus looks to God and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you know, David's men, David's men, they honored him with a drink. My people, they've abandoned me. I have no people. (coughs) My people, they're indignant. They're mocking me. They're spitting at me. They're scoffing at me. These are the people I came for. But I look to God, and God himself has forsaken me. In other words, what he's saying, and he did literally say, he said, I thirst. I'm longing for a home. I'm longing for peace. I'm longing for rest. And I know that it can only be found in my father, with my father, and my father has forsaken me. In other words, I'm being poured out. Not in honor, but in dishonor. I'm being poured out. As I'm being poured out like a drink offering, do you know he himself was offering himself in thanks to the Father, glad that he was doing it, satisfied that he was doing it. He was reciting Psalm chapter 22. That means he was worshiping as he was doing it through and through, living in the word, obedient to the king, honoring his king, his master, to the end. And that life poured out, it gives us far more assurance. It gives us far more assurance than what David had. Do you know that? David, he was blown away by the sacrifice. We should be even more blown away. That truth should be dynamite in our souls. David had hope. David had strength to move on. David was moved by the sacrifice. We should be all the more hopeful. No matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, no matter where we are, one of the, things, one of the joys of being a church planner is I get to know a good number of people here intimately. I know. And there's not a single circumstance, there's not a single situation where God is not present. That is assurance. We have hope. We should all the more have hope. You know, on one hand, the gospel makes us humble. Because why? We didn't deserve it. David, he's the king, and yet he said, I don't deserve this. Far be it from me. It humbled him, and as a result, he worshipped. It led him to worship. Yet it gave him hope, and it gave him strength, and it gave him confidence, not because his men were skillful. He didn't say, hey, you guys are a lot better than I thought. That's not what he said. He he poured it out as a drink offering, a thank offering to the Lord. He said, we didn't deserve this. We didn't earn this. It gave him humility on one hand, but it gave him strength knowing that God was with him. We have all the more strength. Do you see that? Only if you see that Jesus had done that for you, and if you, if you see the sweetness of that, if you see the heroism in that, if you see the mightiness of Jesus in that, then you will have joy and you will have peace. You know, you say, I'm longing for friends. I'm just longing for a relationship. You have the relationship. That becomes the foundational relationship on which all relationships are built on. You say, oh, I'm looking for love. My spouse, my children, they just take me for granted. You have the love on which all other loves can be founded on. Can that love break? That love will never break. And the more you see that, the more you root yourself in that love, all the other loves become a joy. You actually turn around and serve. You serve. You say, oh, I just want honor. I just want respect in life. You know, men, they say, I just want to be respected. You have all the honor and the respect. This is the king who has become a servant to the end, to the point of death for you. You have respect. You have honor. 
Jesus calls us friends. He says, you are my brothers. Jesus sends us out. You don't see that as honor? That is honor. That is all, and that is the honor on which all other honors are built on. Everything else that we seek honor in, be it from our jobs or our families, anywhere we want, you will hear God sigh. Because then you see who you are. You know, if you're humble enough to see who you are in the light of Christ, that you belong to him, all of you, all of you belongs to all of him, and if you see that he has loved you with an everlasting love, you will hear his sigh. And that's going to move you to act and to love and to care, to sacrifice for other people in a radical way, not just in a way where, where you want things back from people. It's a genuine love because you give and there are no strings attached. Now, I'm going to wrap this up. That's going to lead us to genuine community. When you're able to do that, that's going to lead to genuine community. Folks, this is the power of friends. This is the power of community. When you go out like that, now, when you guise that and say, well, I want something back, we're so disappointed when we don't get anything back because your love hasn't gone deep enough. The root hasn't gone deep enough to root into the love of Christ. Do you see that? The sacrifice that he's made, the friendship that he's given. You're looking for it somewhere else, and those roots don't go very deep, and they wither, and the tree dies. But when you root yourself in that, that is the power. Then you will experience the power of true friends, true community. What does a community do around you? David, he needed community. Without his men, he would have been lost. He would have been confused. He would have been dead. Community encourages. Community uplifts. A community in Christ refreshes. It's like water to the soul. It soothes you. There's not a single person here that doesn't need community. There's not a single person here who doesn't need real community and who cannot become. Everybody here is called to be that. These men, they knew David. They knew what he needed. They were battle-tested, battle-ready together. They understood his longing and they acted on it. It gave him hope. So now he he doesn't say, what, you know, you guys are great. This is all I need. That's not what he says. He pours it out before the Lord. He saw that the Lord is present. He's grateful to the Lord. A true friend, a true community points you not towards that horizontal need for one another, but always brings you back to worship so that worship here becomes sweeter, so that the community groups that we have become better. They become more real on one hand because there's humility, and they become so much more encouraging because there's reality, the real reality, the truth of the gospel. Genuine friends, worship together. Lead each other in worship together. Address the deepest longings of our souls. That's what it does. Shows us the hope, the victory that we have in Christ. Now, stop making, I'm going to say this, just stop making your agenda the primary agenda of your community. That's how you do it. Your agenda is not the primary agenda of your community. Look to their agenda, their hopes, their longing, and bring them to the king. Pray together. Serve together. Love one another. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second commandment is like the first Jesus says, love one another. Love one another. It will fulfill your deepest longings. I need to wrap up, uh, and so I'll say this. Um, you know, David, he was in a cave when all this happened. He was not on his throne. He was sitting on a stump in a cave, probably drawing on the ground. 
That's what he was doing. This is the king. And what does that show you? That God, his promises are not empty of your suffering. Your suffering is a part of the promise being expressed, being demonstrated. If you're in a cave, sometimes, for some people, the cave, the darkness is guilt. We're so hampered by guilt. For other people, the darkness is indwelling sin. You're just fighting and battling your sin, and you feel like you're, it's a losing battle at times. For some of us, it's just suffering, circumstances that are in our lives that are just tormenting us. And so we're riddled with anxiety, and it's pressing on us. It feels like death. There's an enemy there. The enemy is there. But that's what God uses most often to shape us to become kingly. David didn't learn to be kingly because he was raised in a wealthy home and had the best education. That's not the way David was raised. David was a shepherd, the lowliest of his brothers, sent out because he wasn't really cared for. And in there, God used him. In there, he learned everything that needed to be learned to become king. In the caves, in the caves, in the suffering, in the running, in the fleeing, in the doubt, in the confusion, in the frustration, in the loneliness, in the anger, in the self-pity, in all those areas, David, God was using that to make him a king. Our suffering matters. It matters a lot more than you think. You know, we live in a world where your goal is to prevent suffering and your goal is to stop suffering. And your goal is to build up walls around so that suffering cannot enter in. And you don't realize that that comes at the cost of character. God is shaping character that way. That's how he does it. If God perfected Jesus Christ, who is already perfect, through his suffering, how much more will he perfect you in yours? Will you remember the cross of Christ? Will you remember the sacrifice of Christ? And let that be the hope that all the other longings of hope are rooted in. And that's going to take you then from the, gra- the cave, from the grave for that matter, all the way to the throne. Will you remember that? We get a taste of that on a monthly basis We get to come to the table. We get to eat and consume the brokenness of our Savior. And as that brokenness is digested, it's meant to be consumed completely by us. What that means is that the gospel cannot just be something that we hear and it passes through in between our ears. It's meant to be taken in and digested and consumed. And so as we enter into a time of real renewal, again, you know what this is? It's a covenant of renewal. It means this is an opportunity for us to come to the table and say, Lord, I commit again. Because this week has been a failure. This life has been an utter failure. But I commit again because you, Christ, is our champion, our mighty, our archegos, our archego, who stands in our place, printed in our call to worship, I, I mean in our word of encouragement, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Will you remember that? Let's pray.